Welcome, one and all. This week's episode is a conversation. Actually, it's the first part of a conversation I hope to continue with uh, Richard Satnick, a very interesting guy, as you'll hear. He um, founded a a restaurant chain up here in Portland called Laughing Planet uh, about 15 years ago. Did very well with it, sold it, um, and had some health issues uh, along the way, which was kind of weird because Laughing Planet's a very health-conscious kind of restaurant, ended up having a quintuple bypass surgery as a preventive measure, but it uh, was a slap in the face, and he uh, started looking at life a little differently than he had before, um, particularly looking at um, the food industry. And uh, he's gotten very serious about the notion of uh, farm-to-table food production and consumption. So he bought, um, uh, a year or so ago, he bought uh, 60 acres uh, just south of uh, Portland. He's got a flock of emu, um, some donkeys, uh, a bunch of chickens, rabbits, a beautiful pond in front of the house. And uh, it's it's a great place. We were out there, in fact, sitting in the kitchen when we recorded this. But um, it was a barbecue. A bunch of people were coming out. So we got out there a little early to try to get the podcast done. But then people started showing up a little before we expected them. So we got interrupted. So uh, this is the first half of the conversation. I hope to pick up the second half with them soon. But I didn't want to sit on this one too long because it's really it's really fantastic. Uh, he's also got a, a whimsical kind of toy shop uh, called Missing Link in portland as well he's a huge godzilla fan he's got all sorts of uh really cool stuff in his house um r crumb uh illustrations i don't know if they're originals or not they look original and they're frames so maybe they are um but anyway he's uh richard's a very interesting cat and as you'll hear we don't even get to the restaurant thing really uh in this hour of conversation that we have we're really talking about um, him growing up and, and sort of getting into business and how he fell into this and his uh, previous business projects involving mountain bikes. He had one of the first mountain bike uh, shops in the country. And uh, and I'll tell you, not to ruin any surprises or anything, but Richard is the only person I've ever met who has sat in a tree smoking a joint with a chimpanzee. So there's that. And before I forget, I want to make sure that I publicly thank my buddy Liam for introducing me to Richard. He listens to the podcast, and um, actually, before Liam and I even met, he sent me an email saying, Hey, I think I know a guy you might like to meet. Uh, it seems like you guys would have a lot to talk about. And he was certainly right about that. And um, Liam himself is a very interesting guy. Maybe we can get him on here sometime to tell his story. Um, but it's a very personal story, so I'm not going to tell it without his participation, but um, equally compelling. Anyhow, uh, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Extreme Restraints. Now, this has nothing to do with the giant penis that uh, Richard has in his living room, which is um, an exact replica of the penis you may remember from... Uh, Clockwork Orange, those crazy guys uh, beat someone to death with a white ceramic penis. Well, Richard's got one of those babies. But that's not why Extreme Restraints is sponsoring this episode. It's because we've got a two-week special running with Extreme Restraints. Um, They're the site that brings you all the products you could ever need to fulfill your adventurous erotic side. Starting today, the code is live. So if you type in, uh, oh no, it's not starting today. It started last week actually. But anyway, type in the code AUGUSTSEX at checkout and you'll get 25% off the entire order. Dig it. So if it's 100 bucks cuts it right down to 75 that's a pretty steep sweet discount august sex at checkout all right and they also have free shipping everything shipped in a discreet package your mom won't know what's in there so if you need any sort of maintenance stuff you know just condoms massage oil whatever whatever your your maintenance needs are uh you can get that and if you've been thinking about trying out something new 
uh, maybe a vibrator. I recommend the Magic Wand, formerly made by Hitachi. They've taken their name off it for some silly reason. Uh, but that, um, you know, the Cadillac of vibrators. All my lady friends have told me that that uh, was uh, pretty amazing. Um, anyway, uh, what the hell am I talking about? If you, yeah, you want to get some new toys, you've been putting it off, uh, you want to try a flashlight, whatever, this might be the sign from the heavens. The universe is telling you not to wait. Check out ExtremeRestraints.com before August 25th to get in on this 25% discount and free shipping on your entire order. Enter August 6th. We're also brought to you by My Package. You know My Package. Last week or a couple weeks ago, I said My Package was like uh, BMW for your balls, but somebody pointed out that BMWs tend to attract dicks rather than balls. So, uh, and also I was thinking it's actually, it's more like a bucket seat for your balls. That's what it is. It's a bucket seat for your balls. Very comfortable. Uh, so mypackage.com, M-Y-P-A-K-A-G-E.com. We're going to do something new this week. We know uh, a lot of people are buying these, apparently. it's It's been a pretty successful sponsorship. They're very happy. So thank you for that. Uh, assuming you dig them, uh, take a picture. Send it to us. Uh, if you shoot me a tweet or a Facebook post with a photo of yourself in your undies, you don't need to keep your face if you're embarrassed. Uh, you know, but a picture of yourself in your undies, uh, you get a chance to win a free pair. All right. So even if you're camera shy or whatever and you want to send me some sort of message with some feedback, we'll enter that in the competition as well. So by the next episode, I'll choose my favorite pick or message or tweet and we'll send the winner a free pair of my package active underwear. So go to mypackage.com and enter sex at checkout to try this great underwear that I've been talking about so much. And lastly, Ting. This episode is brought to you by Ting, the provider who only charges you for what you use. Dig that. Imagine a restaurant where you, like, if you only ate half your meal, they'd give you half the money back. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, hey, I only drank half this beer. You owe me three bucks. Perfect. Well, that's how Ting works, right? If you... Also, if you go out of the country, it's only six bucks to keep your number. That's my favorite thing. But if you hardly use your phone for a month, let's say you're on vacation, or as I said in a previous episode, you're in a coma. Let's say you go to prison. Let's say you get in trouble for reading some letter on your podcast and you go to prison for a while. Well, you can keep your number while you're in the slammer for six bucks a month. Even a prisoner can afford that, right? So there's none of this bullshit uh, other companies use. Uh, like this week, I read somewhere or last week, Verizon got busted for slowing down bandwidth for people who were paying for unlimited access to uh, shift it over to people paying per megabyte. Bullshit. So if you're sick of dealing with sneaky bastards who are trying to rip you off, check out sexaton.ting.com. Straightforward, no contract, no hidden fees, no bullshit. Uh, and if you're stuck in a contract or something, they'll chip in 25% of the cost to leave. So you uh, can get out of that contract, but they don't expect you or they're not going to even ask you to commit to a new one. So let Ting help you break up with your current provider and start saving some serious cash every month by going to sexatdon.ting.com. As I mentioned before, I tend to get some really sweet emails from you people, and I appreciate them greatly. Um, they heighten this strange sense of just how bizarre it is that I'm sitting here alone in my office where I spend most of every day. Uh, so it couldn't be more familiar and uh, immediate to me. And uh, I'm talking into this little machine here, and somehow through some miracle of technology and wonder my voice is reaching into very distant places and uh, i got a, an email from a guy named andrew uh greetings from yakanara uh which 
it sort of blew my mind. So this guy lives in a little Aboriginal community called Yakanara in the Kimberley, Australia. He's one of six white fellas in a community of approximately 100 black fellas. I live by myself, and your podcast goes everywhere with me these days. I often trip out about how crazy this technological age is that we live in. When you're telling a story all the way from wherever the fuck you are, and I'm in Yakanara cooking up a barak... Baru Mundi Curry with the mob. <laughs> Andy, it blows my mind too, man. Thanks, thanks for your email. Uh, you know, I, a lot of the emails I get are very personal, so I don't want to talk about those without people's permission. But I very much appreciate those as well. The difficult experiences some people are going through, or or something I've said that reminds them of um, something heavy that they've gone through, especially with the recent. A letter I read um, from the person who, uh, who who was dealing with the death of a parent that seemed to um, strike a chord in a lot of people, and I really appreciate all the feedback. Speaking of feedback, there are all sorts of different places you can leave comments, um, which is kind of a bummer. I'd like to have them all in one place so that you guys can talk to each other, but I'm not sure how to arrange it. Um, there's a facility for leaving comments on my site, chrisryanphd.com. Uh, just click on podcast and you'll see tangentially speaking. That's where I put up photos of the guests or, or whatever, you know, sort of, um, visual stuff I've got, uh, related to the episode. But then also at tangentiallyspeaking.com, which, uh, links you to the hosting site, there's a, a, tan, a Libsyn, it's called. There's um, a comment facility there as well where some people are leaving comments. And then there, someone just started a subreddit where people have been uh, leaving some comments. I don't really understand the whole Reddit thing very well, but um, I drop by there and uh, I'll engage in conversation if anything gets started there. Uh, I think you just go to Reddit and you search tangentially speaking with no space in between. I searched with a space and it didn't take me there. So it took me a while to find it. But if you do the search without a space, tangentially speaking, like it's one word, that'll take you to the the subreddit and uh, maybe we can get a little community started there. I'm recording this intro, uh, uh, what is it, a week? I think a week in advance because I'm going to be... Um, on Star Island, a little island off the coast of New Hampshire. Um, Some people invited us, uh, Kisilda and me, there to um, hang out for a week, and I'll be giving little morning sort of lecture workshops thing, workshop type things. I guess I'm the entertainment. I'll be uh, yakking for my food. So that's where I'll be, and there's no internet connectivity out there, so I'm going to, you know, throw this up and time it to release while I'm gone. So I'm off on Star Island, uh, disconnecting from the internet for a while, but I hope you're well, and uh, I'll look for your emails and your tweets and the rest of it when I get back from the island around the 25th or so. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Alright, I've been to Dick's Kitchen And now I'm on Dick's Farm uh, And I've got Dick here with me And actually, we <laughs> it didn't occur to me that Is that I'll, I'll post a picture of the uh, Clockwork Orange sculpture. Sculpture, <laughs> absolutely. Now, did you get that because it's a dick? Is, um, is there a dick theme running through these things? And an admiration of uh, of brilliant filmmaking. Uh, okay. um, and one of the you know one of the uh, you'll pardon the expression seminal films <laughs> of yeah. of of its era, as well as seminal filmmakers. That's um, Kubrick, right? Yes, yeah. and and movies that you they just demand your attention and and part of your brain has to be involved which is you know so contrary to what what's out there now yeah you're right i think a lot of what's out there now particularly coming out of hollywood is about turning your brain off exactly just escapism and and generally 
not just metaphorically anymore it's all become cartoons it's all it's all animation all the great films like planet of the apes have been turned into animation yeah um godzilla things that used to have a larger set of meanings you know in culture are now just like you say mere distractions it's strange isn't it how how the role has shifted from like it used to be serious stuff was coming out of film Mm-hmm. And TV was bullshit. Right. And now there's some really serious TV happening. Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, but films I, are bullshit. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that shocked me, because I generally avoid TV, um, was the Breaking Bad series. Oh, Because I, I thought, yeah. wow, there's actually some serious dilemmas being torn, tearing these people apart, some of which is fascinating to watch in the same way that a train wreck is, but some of which is painfully reminiscent of things that we all experience and that you know yeah. that for tv i was shocked so yeah it's kind of their little bright spots here and there in in the overall scheme of decline in our civilization <laughs> which will be a theme of this conversation i'm sure but yes. um yeah that what i love in in tv is and i'm not sure what the first case of it was or even if they're they're probably the first case would go way back into classical literature i guess but the whole idea of the you know, someone who pulls you in at the beginning, you really like them at the beginning, and then as it progresses, in the case of Walter White, you know, you sort of see the evil coming out and, you know, all this kind of stuff, but you already like him, so you're implicit, you know, or complicit, I guess is the word. Right. So you there's become that. invested in, in that character so that you're, the same thing happens with real people that you eventually yeah. get to know that exactly. have that suddenly are, are a lot more complex and nuanced than the first few weeks you hang out. Right. And then there's the opposite, where you start out being completely repulsed by someone. Tony Soprano. I don't know if you watch The Sopranos. Yeah, one had to at some point to be culturally literate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or uh, Deadwood. Do you ever see Deadwood? I saw a little of it. I, by then, I had um, kind of migrated away from electronic media, but... Right. For periods of time, I kind of fade in and out of contact with major culture. So yeah. this, I, I didn't really see that. I saw more of The Sopranos just because it was more ubiquitous. Right. And there were fewer choices. By the time Deadwood came out, the, the whole cable thing was really beginning to explode. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, the, the, what interests me about Deadwood is that it, it has the opposite trajectory. It starts off the first episode... The main character, Al Swearingen, who owns the the saloon. Okay, he's yeah. kind of the central figure in the whole thing. The very first episode, we see him knife a guy to death and and basically like you know insult him as he's bleeding to death, and order the killing of a very cute eight year old girl because she witnessed something that he doesn't want anyone to know about. Right, that's the first episode. So the first episode. You're like, okay, that's Satan, right? That is the, the that is the evil. evil. And then throughout the course of the, it's, I think it's three series or three years that the series ran. Throughout the course of it, you you come to love the guy. It's it's amazing. Was that was that intended by the writers? I'm sure it was. Yeah, yeah. Even be, on a three year span, because that's that takes nerve. Yeah. Well, they thought or, it was going to go longer. I think it oh. was. It was a surprise when it got killed, and and they they didn't wrap it up. It wasn't like you know. It wasn't meant to be three years. Well, now you've now you're you've intrigued me enough where I should rent that and look at it. It's really however you do it. It's really days. well done. And Good. and the other thing that's interesting about it, it's written by a guy named David Milch, who who did NYPD Blue back in the seventies. Okay, you remember that? Yep. Yep. Um, but he uh, he also tried to recreate the actual um, linguistic patterns of the Old West. And the way people spoke then was this weird sort of almost Shakespearean English. And like a lot of the subjunctive was used. And uh, <laughs> things were... And you know, like he went back and studied that's that great. shit. It's well, really interesting. Well, yeah, that's, that's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Anyway, so this the, none of this has anything to do with... The, anything really except no. that you and i are both uh i think we share a general skepticism of modernity can, yes could we say that yes 
And uh, so let me just uh, sort of, uh, the way I know you, uh, someone who listens to the podcast wrote to me, Liam, and uh, sent me an email and said, hey, I love the podcast, and I've got this friend you really ought to meet. He's super interesting. He started a restaurant called Laughing Planet. Is yes, that right? correct. And that's all over Portland and the Northwest? Is- well, it's expanding into um, Nevada, and it's all over Oregon for the moment, and beyond it won't take very long, my suspicion. And what, what was the like originating philosophy of that? Um, basically, a, a kind of a healthy burrito chain that mm. was medium to reasonable price. It started out being an attraction for cyclists. I was originally in the bike uh, business. Right. Realized that the bike business was extremely hard to make a living at because the margins are so tight. Knew some folks doing burritos and looked at how they were doing it. It kind of evaluated their model. It took a while because I was still trying to keep my bike business going, but realized that they had a better idea and that I could tie in the needs cyclists had nutritionally, which they were also at the front edge of thinking about being vegetarians and eating proper foods a little earlier than most because they understood that it was performance. It was their fuel. Oh, um, gotcha. And so we built our first restaurant with the burrito size to fit in a water bottle cage, and, and we made it cheap <laughs> enough. That's funny, really. Well, yeah, and, and I did, did it in Bloomington, Indiana, which was where I'd been both to college and lived after grad school, sort of teaching and sort of being a, a, a rugby renegade. And what, what years are we talking about? Um, in the, let's see, it would have been in the late 70s. Um, is, well, actually, that's when I was in school, in graduate school, right. and living in Bloomington, where I wasn't actually a student. It was kind of an interesting arrangement. Um, so when I started Laughing Planet would have been um, actually all the way by until 1995. Ah, okay. Um, and I didn't come to Portland till 2000 with the idea. But the first one was in 95 in Bloomington. And it was just a burrito joint, just an inexpensive, you know, quick service burrito joint, but one that was at the forefront of nutritional thinking back then. Eat low on the food chain, eat mostly vegetarian and, and um, even vegan stuff. It was right. promoted and still is at some level as the most nutritious way to go. So that worked out kind of, to my surprise, became an interesting idea with sound business fundamentals. And I thought, well, this is cool. Might be fun to see if you could do a few of these and achieve some economies, build some more, have more control over your product by having a slightly bigger operation. But I didn't want to do it in the Midwest because I didn't see... I didn't see the consumer acceptance being far enough along mm. in, in this healthful trend. So I looked around and looked at a bunch of maps of, of places where food is grown nearby and looked at Portland for a couple of reasons and came out here and was instantly in love with the area because of, its, of both the, its physical capacity to produce food. It has an intact food shed, but also because the people here understand a lot better than anywhere in America what it's going to take to live much more sustainably and are mm-hmm. trying to do it. So mm-hmm. I was immediately, attra- even in in 2000 when I came here, um, well, I actually started in 98 because I was checking it out and doing all these other things. Um, even then it was pretty obvious that this was a unique um, a unique place from a both a physical sense and a cultural or a ideological sense. It's also, you know, there's good beer, good coffee, incredible environment. Yeah. Um, and good quality uh, of life for relatively cheap. For, for a price that's hard to find anywhere, you've got yeah. amenities that are amazing, like this, this farm, this ranch. Yeah. Um, still really only about 35 minutes for me to get into town, if yeah. you know your way around. And... Yet it's going to be a part of a food production system for my restaurants, you know. So that that kind of intact food shed is hard to find. As well as, you know, we've got water, we've got good soil, we've got the resources that haven't been squandered yet completely. Hmm. As we went down the industrial agriculture road, we began to do that. But it's already pretty far gone in California, that process. And that's very hard to recover the the fertility of that soil that's oh, been yeah. overgrazed and overharvested. So we're very lucky up here, and I think the rest of the world's beginning to figure that out too. So 
um, it's going to be a bit of a gold rush since land is still reasonably priced here, and you can't say that in most places. Yeah. Can you explain what a food shed is for people who don't understand? Um, well, it's, it's kind of like the concept of a watershed. It's how all the elements of food percolate into a central space like Portland, which has from going all the way from the origin and raising the food or gathering the food to getting it into central distribution points and bringing it and processing it and bringing it to Portland restaurants or, or supermarkets. So a food shed is the sum total of all of these connections that go toward feeding a, a metropolis. And in many ways, one of the dilemmas we face in the food world now is the there's a positive and a negative to the in the internationalization of the food system, yeah. um, which is why everybody's talking about eat local, eat local. Right. Um, that's part of the solution. It's not exclusively. You, know, you really do want to take advantage of where other regions can do things better than you can. But where we have the capacity to feed ourselves, that's the food shed. Right. So what did you study when you were in college? Uh, anthropology, actually. Anthropology, and, right. Uh, with a heavy emphasis on evolutionary anthropology, um, studying and being puzzled by um, how we came to be the way we were. And, right. you know, even even before I was old enough to know the term, I kind of was a bit of an anthropologist even as a kid, mm. always being puzzled by other people's behavior. <laughs> um, and um, Not your own? Well, and... and as an observer, you know, I was also learning to take a stance to try to pull myself out of any guilt with respect to the stupidity being unfurled in front of me. Um, <laughs> and even as a kid, I noticed, you know, commuting to work and going in a nine to five, the uh, the organization man concept was kind of big when I was a kid. And, you know, I could tell that was a crock of shit. So, yeah. I, that was from that point on was one of my main goals in life was avoid having a real job. Yeah, um, my whole life, and I've pretty much You've done, done that. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good for you. And you also avoided, you know, struggling to try to make a living as an anthropologist. Well, that was it, there were a lot of reasons why I never became a professional anthropologist. One is I I went into it for sheer fun, um, and mm. in those days, getting a grant to go to the University of Chicago to pay for the whole process, how could I say no? So mm -hmm. I, I carried on doing it, even though my intent wasn't really to become a practicing anthropologist because in, in truth, as interesting as it is, it's really only one segment of reality. And, and mm -hmm. the academic segment can sometimes feel pretty confining in its own way. I and and it's, it's great for leading to some great breakthroughs, but in many ways it's... I used to think of it as an escape from the rat race, and then I realized it was a diff just a different kind of rat race. And yeah. At the same time, I had a bit of an ethical conundrum about my research topic, which were chimpanzees in captivity. Ah, oh, that's right. We we spoke about that a little bit the other night in the restaurant. Right. Yeah. So now this is your PhD. You were right. Working I on? was. I was basically collecting data to finish up all the requirements for my PhD. I had started a project in the University of Pennsylvania primate facility just as a visiting or an associate researcher um, with a National Science Foundation grant to look at chimpanzee communication and kind of do a semiotic analysis. Back in those days, that yeah. was the, the hot term. That's cutting, cutting edge. Back then, it was yeah. really cutting edge. And it still is. I mean, it's it's sort of revived recently. Has it really? Well, wow. with Coco, you know, the, the bonobo and the, the, all this, the, the panel of symbols, you, right, you know right. about this? Oh, yeah. And they found that, I don't know if, I think it was Coco who taught her son to do the to do that, so right. they're showing you know cultural transmission essentially. Right. Well, this yeah. was this was something that uh, you know I really enjoyed the the aspect of having two years to hang out with a bunch of chimpanzees and become kind of personal friends with them. But I also realized that they're they're conscious creatures that shouldn't be subjected to this kind of a, a the experimental um, convenience for a couple of guys in you know, in a department of, in this case, David Premack in psychology at University of Pennsylvania or me, a graduate student from the University of Chicago, that this wasn't ethically correct. So at some point, my um, my commitment to the whole idea began to waver. And um, I was 
I just kind of hit a wall. And mm. Hitting the wall, actually discovering at the same time this new phenomenon called a mountain bike and looking at that saying, wow, that looks like fun. Um, and I can see that the whole industry is going to suddenly have to pivot to accommodate this very new product. This mm. was before anybody knew what a mountain bike was. I just stumbled into it. I was way into cycling even as a grad student and mm. was very early on. Now, in Indiana or in Chicago? Um, both in Indiana, which is the home it's a of big Breaking cycling. Away. Yeah, and, that's right. That's and, what I was going to say. Or Breaking yeah. Wind, as we call it. But um, <laughs> Which, for people who don't know, that was a bicycle racing movie from when? Late 70s, yes, early 80s? Right. And that was the milieu I lived in. Yeah. And it was a, it, it's still actually a gorgeous countryside around Bloomington. Yeah. The problem is that if you get much beyond that, you're in Indiana. and. Mm. That's mostly cornfields and soybeans and not a particularly edifying place. But, um, no, I also, I started the bike shop um, kind of instead of really finishing my Ph.D., I moved to Atlanta. First, I moved to New York for a little while to gather up some money. And then I moved back to, I found a place in Atlanta. You're from New York originally. Right, I grew up in, in on Long Island, mm. um, which makes being farmer dick kind of an amusing <laughs> an amusing counterpoint to where i grew up mostly yeah. in suburban yeah. uh, housing that i really didn't like yeah. um and still don't care for that edge of of new york city of course how can you not love the real city um but i i moved to atlanta without just before atlanta exploded and it was a kind of a good time to be there started the first mountain bike specialty store in the whole country and it's still there. It's still in, in Little Five Points in a very funky kind of changing part, of ever-changing, little bit seedy part of town, always the parts of town I'm most attracted to. Mm. Um, both, both from a personal level and from a business level. Both, yeah. exactly. And it's probably because I, I have to feel, hey, these are some interesting things, interesting people here. It's not just commercial. Yeah. I'm the same. If there's no edge, I get really bored right. really quickly. Yeah. I mean, you can walk down Union Street in San Francisco, which is okay, or you can get into some really funky streets in the Mission, yeah. where I think you know, you're know you likely to see some graffiti, you're likely to see real people doing stuff instead of the composed plastic. Well, I don't yeah. know. Union Street isn't that bad, maybe. but Yeah, I mean, I, I also feel that uh, most acutely on an international level, you know, Cassie and I talk a lot about going to live somewhere in Latin America or Asia or whatever, you know, when, when you're in, I mean, have you been to Asia or? No, um, my, my experience is strictly in Europe, um, uh, okay. a little bit in Mexico when I was a kid. Yeah. But um, no. I'd, What's that same feeling you get, like you're describing in the mission where you're like, you know, you, you, you on Union Street or, you know, whatever, uptown, we could just say, you know, uptown versus downtown, the, everything's controlled, everything's clean, everything's sort of manicured, and it's the difference between a garden and a jungle, right? Yeah, and it, the intent of it, the, the design intent is to make you, is to get you to spend money. Right. Rather than to interact in a, in a social setting, which is, you know, much more interesting use of public space. That's yeah. where I get excited about outdoor seating and yeah. places like, the, you know, like Amsterdam, where as soon as the sun is out, man, they use every square inch of their outdoor space. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. there's a lot to be learned from that. There's, it's yeah. a great use of of um, making it so people can socialize, which is one of the one of the other things our civilization isn't doing very well. Yeah, yeah, you're right because it's all oriented toward making money. One, you and I both love Barcelona, and one of the things I love about Barcelona is the way you can walk into a bar and bar cafe and that's that's the beginning like it there are few there are cocktail bars but most places where you would go to get a beer also serve food and right. coffee and whatever there are kids there there are people there with their dogs there are old people playing dominoes there the whole mix of the society is in there right it's not like well this is a place where young people go this is a place where older people go this is a place where you're allowed to have your kids fuck you can take your kids anywhere in spain well, and that's that's a different conception about use of, of space rather than breaking us up into demographics. The way right. all the different coffee bars in Portland must be thinking: who are they? You know, which which sector of the hipsters are we going to attract in here? Right. Instead of broadening it out so that it's truly a community-oriented space, yeah. and that is true. That is a wonderful aspect. One of those 
subtle things that you you know you pine for when you think about European cities like Barcelona or there's a lot of that in Berlin too yeah. where cafes are everywhere and clearly this is where art comes from this is where people get inspired is by hanging out with each other we're, yeah we're we're social creatures you say it in your book and, yeah. and you know we we uh, we really are I think it's one of the things we've we've mucked up in our modern world as you look at high-rises and people and you know having to have a special passcode to get into your building and things like that yeah did you hear about this thing in New York now where they're the the city gave huge tax breaks to real estate developers to put some um, affordable housing units in their new buildings so like if you you know five percent of the new units are for affordable housing which means a family for that makes under 150 grand a year right (laughs) that's the low income subsidized housing Um, but what they did was they put a special entrance for the affordable housing people so, so that the rich people wouldn't their... have to see them, yeah, wouldn't have to be in the elevator with them, those low class, hundred and fifty grand per year people. <laughs> that's they, pretty interesting. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that amazing? Well, but I think that's part of the trend that that I think as civilizations get to the point we're at and it, we're splintering. That's an example of it. I mean, it's yeah. it's you building barriers between groups of people is we're separating rather than can, you know coming together for some common purpose which you know when was the last time that existed in our country world war 2 um, you know that was and i can only tell you that i you know grew up hearing about it not in it so yeah but i don't see anything remotely like that maybe the korean war but i think even then people were pretty suspicious that it wasn't a necessary thing that yeah. we had to do yeah, yeah. And well, World it, War Two was, and yeah. really there was an evil to be fought. Uh, yeah. You know, even though the Soviet Union really won that war, we we like to take credit for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they also paid the more ultimate price than we did, but yeah. I can't think of anything since then. And, and you know, as as you imagine the idea that there's no sense of mission for, for a nation, how would that sound if you were talking about someone's business or someone's even their life you know what yeah. what are you really trying to do with your life is a is a theme we're sort of always thinking about but if you stop thinking about that on a national level what happens yeah well, then we just become everybody pursues their own personal gain and personal amusement without worrying about anything else and you can buy an awful lot of really amazing amusements and and things with money and there's a lot of money floating around so yeah it's an interesting, you know, interesting time. I wish I could see a few more years down the road. I'm not sure I'll be around for that, but um, I think folks that are growing up right now are going to have a hell of a transition on their hands. And and there's hell of both, a ride, yeah. Yeah, they'll both be opportunities, but also people are going to have to think in a way that I'm not optimistic. We're doing a good job of building those minds right now. Yeah. Now the educational system is completely. Well, so the nutritional system, too. I mean, unless people start eating properly, how do you build a a functioning brain without, you know, omega-3 fatty acids? Mm. So these are things that are connected. It seems almost, Liam likes to talk about it being a a conspiracy, but it's it's a conspiracy of of idiocy, of of dunces, Mm. Um, because it's, we're doing it to ourselves, and now it's a spiral where we can't think very clearly to think ourselves out of the problems we're creating and then they right. get worse and pretty soon you know you can imagine how did this look what, what did it look like in other cities that were at advanced stages of collapse what was it like to live there and that's where you sort yeah. of compare to what we're living in now yeah i've been reading a bit about that recently i just read a wonderful book uh i can never remember the name of it though it's, it's something like a colossal splendor or something like it. it's some strange phrase but uh what the author argues is that every civilization passes through these same phases mm-hmm. right and um where we are now i mean you you pulled up the the business metaphor you know like okay if a business loses a sense of mission and purpose and identity and all that which the united states has to a very large extent but also there's you know the the lack of um investment in infrastructure oh yeah you know like we this country isn't planning for a future this yeah, country exactly. is operating as if there is no future so there won't be right. yeah i mean there will be but certainly not right. a good one 
you know, a business that doesn't reinvest in the business isn't going to be in business for very long, you no. know? And that, that's exactly right. But the, the funny thing is that this was more or less obvious to me um, when the Reagan revolution occurred. Me too, brother. And, and that's when I left. <laughs> Seriously, I was in college well, when Reagan got elected, and some of the you. people I was in college with were like, yeah, Reagan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, are you fucking kidding me? You're right. 20 years old and you are in favor of this shit? Right. And then all the, the Contras and the death squads and the, the Iran-Contra thing. I mean, come on. That was so bad. Well, and really the, the issue in terms of the way in which our society has changed is that it it made greed as good. Uh, That's uh, it. Basically. Uh, Trickle-down economics. Exactly. Yeah. And the guys that invented most of the intellectual underpinnings were at my university, at University of Chicago. Yeah, which, Milton Friedman. Right. Yeah. I remember thinking when I was there as a grad student that it would be fun to whack him with a pie one day just just to register my sense of outrage at what he was proposing. Yeah. But or even then... hit him in the head with a baseball bat. You know, you could have done that. I was thinking about killing Idi Amin. <laughs> I remember I was living in New York at the time and he came to the UN for something. This is in the 80s when he was like eating people and shit, you know? <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking like, well, I could actually, you know, serve humanity by taking this guy out. And you see, know? you wimped out. I you? wimped out, I did. I should have gone after Milton Friedman or... Or David Stockman. You know, David Stockman, a couple years later, uh, actually published Recanted. a book. Yeah, and he said that was all bullshit. There well, was no data for that. Right. And the trickle-down economics. They're still saying it, and Paul Krugman's still trying to get people to recognize <laughs> it. Paul Krugman. That, you know, hey, boys, you know, you're living in a fantasy land, and... Look at the damage it's done. And but see, I think they know that they're not living in a fantasy land. They know it's no, bullshit. They're living, they're living in their ivory towers and their beautiful buildings and their, and their private communities. villas. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. And they've got everything they need. Um, and that's, again, another symptom that we're in that stage that this author you refer to. And, you know, it's a common theme that there are these, these stages civilizations go through. And we're, we're showing the signs that we've, kind of accelerated the process or kind of shot ourselves in the head with this Reagan revolution. This is where yeah. it really began to unravel, although one can argue that the even putting together the the effort to go through World War II was a massive con job at some level or another, and at the same time um, was maybe a temporary respite from the overall unraveling of our civilization. And who knows? I mean, it, at some level, I was always a fan to root for it because the, the faster we pass from the scene, I figured the less damage we could do. Yeah. But we, unfortunately... We as humans as or humans, as Americans? Well, he, both. Yeah. But, but as humans, we're, you know, we've already probably been responsible for massive extinctions that, um, yeah. you know, who knows what nature would have done with some of these critters. And why are we so proud to think that somehow we're the epitome of evolution? We're just a grand experiment, and I figure we fucked up most of it, um, particularly when we we you know we settled down and started been building condos when we started agriculture instead yeah. of instead of living in bands of hunter gatherer societies wandering around fucking all day. Hey, you're preaching to the choir there, man. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, this is this is the truth. This is what we are as a species, as, yeah. as an anthropologist. I've known this for a long time, but I've made a lot of compromises in order to pursue all the things you do in life, and only to pay the price in you know health deficit by not recognizing that humans are, you know, we're really not vegetarians. We're we're we are supposed to be eating some animal flesh that does right. some of the nutritional processing for us. We're, so so that brings us to your business transition, right? right I mean, right. so tell us that story. You you build up this business. You've got it's doing very well. Uh, Laughing Planet. You've got you know stores all over Portland. Well, I've sold Laughing Planet. Right? No, I know, but I'm I'm like going back to the. Oh, okay. When, well, the idea was that that once Portland became possible to see doing several units, um, I realized that it was a, a, both an opportunity to grow the business, but at some point it started to become a serious business. And, right. and for me, the fun is in 
the unknown part of the voyage where you're out mm. mucking around with ideas and people going, you can't do that. So and you're a creator, not a manager. Exactly. As yeah. soon as it gets to be management, it's I'm really not very good at it. It's and great. You know, that is such a, a crucial insight for a businessman to have that oh, most yeah. don't. Yeah. You know? Clint Eastwood <laughs> said it. You, a man's got to know his limitations. And, <laughs> and I agree that, yeah. that we, you know, that's... I've got lots of blind spots, and I have to find people that are very good at filling those if yeah. I'm going to build an edifice that's going to sustain it. Right. But I also have to figure out how to make something get bigger without turning into a, a bureaucracy right. or a, you know, a bunch of management nightmares, having to have people doing you know, HR programs and things to comply with federal laws. And yeah. I mean, those are important things, and I don't want to denigrate the folks that do that work. It's just... Um, I'm not very good at that. I'm, I, you know, I have a kind of entrepreneurial ADD, uh, and, and I love looking at little so problems that deserve a solution that might become viable as a business thing, which is why I've got, besides Dick's Kitchen, I've got several other business things percolating under the surface related to sustainable food. And, and also, like, completely out of left field, you have a toy store? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's it called? Missing, missing Link. Missing Link on Mississippi... In North Mississippi, yeah. in, in a thriving neighborhood yeah. across the street from one of the Laughing Planets. Um, it's a personal uh, hobby that started with me collecting Godzillas before that was a big deal and actually getting going to Japan to search out some of the rare figures. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, just <laughs> I, because it was kind of weird and a great entree into a strange part of Japanese culture. Yeah, and also it's got that primate connection. Well, you, you get into... I've always been way fascinated by apes. I must have been something when I was a kid where I went... Or something. I don't know what it is, but you put me around a bunch of chimpanzees, and I'm a lot happier than when I'm with people. So when you were with the chimps, were were they always in a cage, and oh, you're no. on the other side? No, 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 no. These were four young ones. They were about four years old, so they were right at the ch transition point where they could become unmanageable and dangerous. Right. Yeah. No, they were. We were for lack of a better term, parent surrogates to them. Are, are, oh, really? So yeah. you had them like crawling up on... Whole, oh, yeah, I had... In, in fact, um, one of the males that... Actually, the only male, what am I saying, of this group, um, Bert, was, you know, kind of... He and I bonded very strongly. And when nobody was around in the lab, it was a very small lab with um, one researcher and a couple of his grad students, and then I had an office... But I would I would let Bert come up into the office and not just stay in the cages where the where the they normally stayed. I mean, he made a mess and wrecked my office. But we would we would hang out and look at stuff, and I would watch what he was doing. Mm. Eventually, it got uh, got to the point. I don't I don't know if I should say this, but it got to the point where uh, Bert and I managed to share some marijuana together, and um, <laughs> you know the the mind meld that happens when. Two very closely related species yeah. are, are, are uh, smoking particularly good <laughs> marijuana. Um, and it was actually very easy. He knew exactly what to do. Um, did, did he roll it? No. <laughs> but I used to keep a little, a little uh, traveler's pipe in this pouch I would have. You would always wear scrubs around them because they uh -huh. could shit on you at any moment. Uh -huh. um, so you change into scrubs and you kept a little pouch with you. Maybe in those days it would have, well, we didn't have cell phones back then. What did we put in there? Who knows? A notepad or something, right, yeah. a pencil. And so I'd keep this little tiny pipe. And when everybody else would leave and I had nothing better to do, I would light up a bowl and hang out with chimpanzees for two or three hours. And I envy that. Yeah, playing with them and, and exploring. They had this beautiful one-acre compound behind the, the lab that the rest of the lab people would recognize my status and say, okay, lock them up. You know what to do. We'll see you later. We're going home. It's five o'clock. Right. You know. So from five to whenever I felt like going home, I was with the chimps in a beautiful setting oh, in rural man. Pennsylvania. That's so and cool. Tr truly, both spending time letting them do their thing, rather than trying to force them right. into some paradigm, which was, I was also videotaping a lot of it back in the day when videotape had just been invented. So I had this little portable, gawky little portable machine, and I would just sit with them and let them do stuff and bring in some things for them to play with and see what they did. Um, that's, that was the ad lib part of my work, and then I was doing a, a set of controlled sort of lab experiments doing um, 
videotaping their communication behavior when they were solving problems. But that's a really stilted way to understand how animals communicate. Yeah. Still. So, so you're hanging out, you're like wandering around their trees and stuff. I imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you ever climb up the trees? With oh them? yes. You have to do. You have to yeah. go see where the world is from their perspective. Right. So you're um, up in a tree, <laughs> sitting with chimpanzees, with chimps, smoking pot, smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> in like early sixties? Uh, no, this was. Um, let's see. Uh, Seventy. Oh, seventy. Seventy nine. Oh, good. Okay. Days. So it was good weed too. <laughs> oh, it was getting getting to be getting and, better. Um, you know, at the time, and one of the other things, one of the other themes in my life is from college on, I became an avid rugby fanatic and mm. played rugby and used rugby teams as connections and entrees into communities that I would move around and do various stunts and things, smoke pot with chimpanzees, open a shop. But there was always the backdrop of being involved in rugby, mm. um, which has its reputation for, you know, spawning lots of anarchist behavior of a variety of interesting because rugby is is this very um uh i don't know violent is the word aggressive uh it's hard hitting yeah. but it's also i mean i've watched a fair bit of rugby living in spain i've got a good friend who's irish he always invites me to watch the you know whatever it's called the six nations or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. and um and it's amazing. With, there's so much aggression and, and you know, like very little padding and a lot of head banging. But gentlemanly behavior. Yes. It's a very uh, sort of controlled... I, I don't think I've ever seen a fist fight break out in a rugby match. Oh, well, you didn't hang out with my... No, no, mates, I'm watching, but, you know, New Zealand oh, against South Africa. But that that's one of the great attractions of it is you're walking that line between, you know, wanting to rip somebody's head off and realizing, you know, you're, you're that civilization requires some restraint. You yeah. know, and it's, it's, that's kind of delicious in a way. It's like, yeah. you know, picking out a wound where it's kind of hurting, but it's kind of feels yeah. good to scratch it. Yeah. Um, and or I like think going to a strip club and knowing you're not going to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's deliberate masochism, but you know, yeah, that can yeah. feel good to people in a peculiar way. You yeah. can condition yourself to do that. But rugby is also really fascinating because you're, you're also playing with the edge of civilized behavior off the pitch. I mean, even not just when you're playing. Well, you always go out for a beer afterwards, you right? Have, the code of conduct is you must host the visiting team in a piss-up, a big beer. It's not just a beer. You better have as much beer as the other team can consume. Right. Along with a lot of singing and a lot of, of uh, physical antics that are intended to entertain and outperform the other team. We used to call it the third half. Because ah, it's still competitive. Well, you, in a way that was absolutely hysterical because we we're trying to see if we could sing dirtier songs or perform more nude stunts, um, <laughs> you know, find ways yeah. to become legendary. And these are things... <laughs> find these, ways to become legendary. Oh, yeah. And That's we were, we were challenged constantly to do that. And, and um, you could lose that you could have back in those days even winning wasn't the most important thing another interesting concept about rugby was you you played your best you did your job but in the end winning and losing doesn't really matter ah. it's how well did you did you play and d- were you able to stay on the civilized side of of conduct because the temptation to bash somebody's head in once in a while is pretty irresistible right it's you know, having fallen on both sides of that, I can tell you, you know, it's it's hard to always avoid. But yeah. in any case, you're the, you could lose the, the the first two halves and still win the third half and still go consider that a great, glorious day, especially if you didn't get too many of your teammates arrested or, right. or otherwise unavailable for another match tomorrow somewhere, you know. Yeah. So great community and, and used to be a lot more anarchist and piratical than it is now. It's becoming... I'm worried that it's becoming Americanized and that there's people out there that are seriously, you know, they're training like crazy. They're, these are mm. Olympic athletes that are, yeah. you know, I look at them now and think, holy shit, I know we didn't look like that. We were just a bunch of graduate students. I mean, yeah. you imagine what a terrible rugby team the University of Chicago had. <laughs> a bunch of nerds go to school there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, where I went undergraduate, I went to this college in upstate New York and the team's name was the Statesman. 
Like, hey, that'll strike fear into your heart, right? The statesmen take the field. We're, we're going to talk to you until you surrender, you tigers or right. warriors or whatever you are. But you, that, that part of the rugby world has always been a, a persistent theme kind of running alongside all my other antics. And there's a lot of co-conspirators that come out of the rugby world. When you come up with a, a brilliant idea... Um, you'll find somebody there that'll say, yeah, let's do that and see if yeah. we can't get in trouble. Because you're really bonding. I mean, you know, right. the, the way you were describing walking the edge, I was thinking it's almost like, like um, you know, the way people bond, especially young men, bond over alcohol. Like how much can you drink and still keep your shit together? It's a way of yeah. like showing... And with rugby, it might be like how much testosterone can you have and adrenaline, <laughs> right? Because you're terrified and you're running, you're smashing, you're in pain. You're but you, you have to be very physically fit. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. A, it's a, and you have to use your head. You have to think. Yeah. Uh, it's, the, it's the antithesis of American football. And American football came directly out of rugby, right. but basically began to glorify bashing into people. Right. Where the idea in rugby is and to move. technology. Well, that too. It's so technological, right? right? Whereas rugby is very basic, bare bones. It used to be up until very recently one referee with a, with a watch on and keep score. Yeah. Keep, it was a very uh, do it yourself kind of sport, which is what attracted me to yeah. it. When I f- tried to play football, Back in the Vietnam War era, you know, football was heavily militarized, and I said, "No way, this isn't going to work." Yeah. And eventually, a buddy of mine says, "Man, you," I was at college. He said, "You ought to check out the rugby team. These guys, you know, all they really want to do is fight, fuck, and drink." And I said, "That sounds yeah. like fun. Let's let's see what that's about." Now, what about the homoerotic aspect of of rugby? Because I got to tell you, watching it from outside, I see a you lot get, of you hugging. get a boner out of it. <laughs> I would if I were bi or gay. I'll tell you. Did you hear about the guy in Australia? I think it was semi pro or maybe professional level, and uh, he eventually got busted because in the scrums he was sticking his thumb up guys' asses. <laughs> And he'd been doing it for years. And, well, and when someone finally like complained to the authorities, it was like these rape cases. Right. Like Nine guys came out and said, yeah, he did it to me, too. I didn't want to say anything. Oh, that's hilarious. But the thing <laughs> is that, that quite apart from the outrage of being violated, it's just funny as hell. So <laughs> exactly. You've got to admit that rugby does. It, it, <laughs> no, there, I mean, there is that. I think there, undoubtedly there are some folks attracted to it, but it never seemed to get in the way of my being friends with guys and, you know, we were always just trying to get laid. We weren't mm-hmm. trying to poke each other. We were trying to be wingmen and, yeah. okay, there's somebody who's obviously on to you. Let's see if we can't help. Right. Um, and, you know, even today, there's, there's, we stay in touch with all the guys who used to play rugby at IU. And, and we're on these listservs that keep, you know, suggesting ways that those of us that are definitely in our sunset sexual years, you know, how we can find sneaky ways to get back in the game. It's pretty funny. I mean, it's great advice and great banter. I mean, these are guys you have a bond with that you, there's that social connection that's harder and harder to find. And yet, you know, here's one that's 30 years old, that's still fresh. And I know that we've, we have gotten together again. We had a little convention here, a little West Coast um, alumni meeting here when Mark Cuban was up here and, and, um, he played with us, so you know we came when the Mavericks. Oh, you were knew him. He played rugby at IU, and, oh, and we okay, were great right. buddies. And oh, he, was, cool. he was an absolute dirtbag. Yeah, um, but <laughs> in a great way. I mean, in yeah. an admirable way. That th- these are these are the examples of my heroes or folks that break conventions or chart their own course and tell the rest of the people go fuck themselves if they don't like it. Yeah, um, and you know they t- bear the cost if they don't make it, but if they do, then God bless them. He's having fun. Yeah. So he came to Portland. We got a group of our old rugby mates together. And um, sure enough, you know, even we're all respectable people with careers and reputations. We were at the city grill up on the, the 30th floor of the big building downtown. And, you know, the maitre d' comes to Mark and says, Mr. Cuban, would you ask your friends to put their clothes back on? Because we were standing around in the city grill completely naked. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, and we were so shit-faced. And this was something that didn't require any um, any coordination. We just kind of looked at each other. It was like, you know, the party was flagging a little bit. Oh, so that's what you do. Clothes. Right. And, wow. and that's what makes rugby wonderful is yeah. the ability to flaunt 
um, especially sexual mores back in the day when we were a lot more uptight than we are now. Yeah. Most of us can't believe how easy is it, it is to get laid now, but back in those days, you had to work at it. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like, you know, I, I was born between the two parties, or I, I came up between, I missed the 60s, and I'm going to miss the one that's coming now, you right. know? And I was like, I was there with fucking disco, you know? <laughs> oh, God, isn't that terrible? <laughs> <laughs> I know. My timing was really off, man. No, I, I actually, the first time I saw a naked woman was at Woodstock. I went, I went to Woodstock in 69 when I graduated high school, um, we were dumb enough to buy our tickets, but I went and spent most of the time at White Lake because all these naked women were there, and I'm 17 years old, going, kind of going, "Holy shit, what have I been missing all this time?" Yeah, because I didn't, I wasn't very sociable, so I didn't date or anything until I got to college and naked started. hippies, naked hippies Damn. at the dawn of the of the potential. You know that change moment that didn't happen. You know we yeah. were at it. We were at a pivot point, and then we had Altamont. You know instead of instead of taking yeah. what was the yeah. genuinely it was there at Woodstock. There was this sense of well fuck it, let's take care of each other. We had brought a bunch of food with us. Yeah. We had my friend's truck, and um, we, you know nobody else brought enough provisions. There wasn't enough of anything up yeah. there, and there were these impromptu campsites everybody pulled into and created and. Everybody gave everything away. Right. We were all doing it, and it was great fun. I mean, it was. I ate my first drug-laced birthday cake there, and didn't have any idea what was going to happen. And when it did, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, got eaten alive by mosquitoes, but I was half tripping the whole time. And the next day, there was some LSD-laced wine going around, and that was a, it. Was a trip, literally, and, yeah. and yet people weren't trying to hurt each other right you know we were all just trying to kind of feel our way along in this moment yeah and then that moment passed well it's funny how you know back to the whole conspiracy versus organic development thing you know you said something interesting you, you, we, there was a chance for a change and then we got Al- altamont you know and I, I hear that same sort of thing like you know we could have done something but then the manson sh- you know showed up and and i i often think it's interesting how it's almost like predestiny. Like, of course, there was going to be an Altamont. There were going to be Bansons. There were going to be. There was always going to be some dark side to everything, right? Because that's in our in our human nature. Well, just random chance, you know. If if you get uh, you know a million hippies, uh, so three of them are going to be evil. Yeah, right, right, you know, right. of course. So, and the idea that, you know, there's something about acid or, or free love or, you know, something that makes people good. No, I mean, people are fucked up for all sorts of reasons and, you know, that's not going to fix it. But, um, you know, it's just interesting how the culture latches onto these things to say, see, you know, that's what happens. You, you give a bunch of people freedom and you end up with the goddamn Manson family, you know? Is, is it really the culture doing it or is it the media and the, that's, the media interests that play yeah. up things that then become fixes, fixated, we become fixated yeah. on because we have not, no other good stories to work with? Well, I, I There's think, no money in telling wholesome stories yeah i i i when you i think it's that i think yeah well and that's that's tough but i i think yeah when i say the culture that's what i mean i'm developing an idea for this book i probably shouldn't talk about it too much no go ahead but (laughs) because people are going to say why the fuck should i buy the book i heard him talking about it when he should have been writing it um but i'm developing this idea of uh and it's not necessarily original, but it's the idea that, that societies and corporations, institutions are organic things that develop their own um, agendas, their own life force. They feed, they're like parasitic life forms in a way, <laughs> right? And they're feeding on us. Uh-huh. And so when I say the culture fixates on this or that, and you say, well, it's the media. I agree. It is the media, but the media is... In the culture. It is the culture, right. Just like politics. Uh, Frank Zappa said, politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. <laughs> you know? Well, if Frank said it, it's got it's to be true. It's got to be true, yeah. Yeah, he's a clear-thinking guy. But, uh, you know, so I think it's... 
Of course the media fixates on that because the interest of the organism as expressed through the media, of which the media is a Fair part, I, I, I are going to steer there. us toward that, right? They're not going to steer us toward, hey, look at all these people who you know were alcoholics and then they took some acid and had incredible insights and now they've given up drinking and they've changed their lives. They're not going to steer us toward that because it runs counter to the interests that they're By they, I don't mean people, right? That's the thing. I I need to think of language for this because I'm not saying there's any, you know, um, conspiracy, you know, evil guys sitting around a table in in Davos working all this out. No, I agree with you. It's a momentum of institutions. There's a logic to to the way institutions grow and evolve. And civilizations, right? Like we were talking before, civilizations have these life phases. And we can see that our civilization is... Yeah, is on the down slope, and I think the more interesting question is how sharp is that slope? Um, yeah, and, and are we, you know, are we in for some serious dislocations? And one of the motivations to get this farm, to get back to where we are, it was to have the ability to raise some of your own food. Right. In the future, now, I don't see it happening anytime in the immediate future, but I do see it long term. It's going to be tougher and tougher for us yeah. to have all these supplies we want. Even right now, it's already tough to have food raised the way we want it to be raised. So one can argue the shortages are already here. And yeah. where our choice of eating either industrial food or nothing is not much of a choice. Um, so if you don't have yeah. alternative supplies, what are you going to do? Yeah. So here in Portland, one reason I, I came here is that it was you could do that. You could develop alternative supply networks and feed yourself food that would nourish you and nourish your brain and maybe help us think ourselves out of some of the conundrums we've we've let ourselves into that must be liam you want to pick this up uh another time um this is you tell me yeah i'd love to okay yeah i mean i don't want to keep you from the party but party hell that liam just invited himself so you can see why I'm pretty eager to continue that conversation with Richard. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, sorry it was a little shorter than usual, but uh, I thought it was well worth uh, releasing on its own. Uh, I'll be back soon, and I'll uh, start harassing Richard to, uh, to get together for part two as soon as possible. Uh, so thanks for listening. Ciao. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.